Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Maya Salehi, architect extraordinaire and founder of the eponymous Maya Salehi Studio. In this episode, we discuss Maya's incredible journey, starting from her childhood years growing up in Northeast Iran, then moving to Wales in the United Kingdom before moving back to Iran. She had a passion for design and decor and decided to pursue an architectural path after university studies. And we discuss the hardship of doing that in a culture that didn't necessarily support young female founders, to say the least. I'm inspired by Maya in many, many ways. And one example we talked about is how she turned down a lucrative job offer to work at a major architectural design firm. And she took a bet on herself to open up a studio a couple years ago. Unfortunately, it was right before the pandemic hit. And she was kicking herself for not accepting this stable paycheck during the pandemic. But with a lot of hard work and hustle and and more hustle, Maya Studio is thriving. And during these COVID times, clients have discovered her and are lining up to work with such a talented architect. It's amazing to see. One area we discussed is how creativity comes with courage and taking risks. From Mies van der Rohe to Frank Lloyd Wright to Frank Gehry, we talk about how some of the greatest architects of all time didn't even hit their stride until much, much later in their careers. I'm excited to see how Maya's designs continue to evolve because she's already such an incredible talent professionally. But personally, she also has this strength to detach from expectations. And that's an incredible skill, architect or not. Please enjoy this conversation with the creative and courageous Maya Salehi. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So you have founded the eponymous Maya Salehi Studios, and I have admired your work for so long. And finally, I'm so glad that we're able to just sit down. For the listeners who don't know much about your background, but heard about it a little bit, I've had the pleasure of walking by some of your designs that are just breathtaking. So everything from residences to college campuses to dorm rooms, you've really designed everything. And I want to talk a lot about that. But before we do, if you don't mind rewinding your highlight reel and starting with where you grew up. Sure. Thank you for that. That's super sweet of you to say. So my background is a little complicated. I was born in Northeast Iran in a pretty big city that's very traditional and religious. And so I came from that background. When I was seven years old, my parents moved to Wales, United Kingdom. They were in school. And my sister and I, my sister is five years younger than me. We grew up in a small town in North Wales, and we spent 
a good 12 years there before going back to Iran. So at the time I was back in Iran, it was late high school years. So it was a huge cultural shift going from Iran to England and then back. When I was coming back, I was literally in tears because I had such a good community in England and all my friends were there. And Iran was kind of intimidating, even though we would go back for summer vacations. I just couldn't picture myself living there. But my mom did a really great job with homeschooling us with our Persian studies. So we would go to school in the morning and do all the Welsh curriculum of the school, just a normal school. And then in the afternoon, we would do the Persian curriculum of the same stuff. So math, science, literature, and usually like the Persian study materials were way advanced. So school was a breeze during the day. Like I already knew most of the things going on in school, but we kind of grew up knowing both languages really well, being able to read and write in both. So going back to Iran, it was just more of a cultural transition, not so much that I couldn't communicate as well. And I went back to Iran for a few years before going to university. And I decided to stay for university in Iran. That's where I did my bachelor in architecture. How old were you when you moved back to Iran? I was 16. And was there any choice that you and your sister could have stayed there or your parents? Absolutely not. (laughs) In our culture, you follow your parents until you are either studying or because you're married. And those are really the two options. So at 16, we absolutely did not have any choice. And when I moved to Iran, I threw a fit and didn't unpack my bags because I thought that when I turn 18, I'm out of here. But it was a flexible age. So you kind of transition pretty quickly. And at first it was hard and I'd go to the bathroom in school and cry because I couldn't keep up with the way that they were talking in class. And the fact that it was a very religious community was hard for me as well. But quickly you make friends and you find your people and then it's just you find attachments over there. So I feel like It was a good move now when I look back because it just made me so much closer to my roots and gave me a lot more diversity and just how I see the world because I actually experienced living in both cultures. And so you mentioned that you knew what you wanted to study when you went to college. How did that come about? So I wanted to do interior design since I was a little girl when I was about maybe nine or 10. The shows that I were really into in England were home makeover series, especially ones where it was like a surprise home makeover where the mom was struggling and left the house for an hour and then this big group would come in and then seeing their reaction and the way that it really changed people's lives. I was smitten just in awe of that impact and I just was so drawn to it. And when I was in school, I was really good at math, but I never really wanted to go into any deep math work. It was a sensible thing for me and I kind of understood it, but it wasn't a passion to go to something purely mathematics. So I think I had a teacher at one point suggest that you you seem to like art and you seem to like math. Think about architecture. And I was always like adamant that I want to do interior design. And that kind of started with interior design. And then I saw that there aren't very good bachelor programs for interiors. And a lot of people kind of transition into interiors from other careers. And so architecture seemed to be the closest one. And keeping in mind, again, culturally, we don't really have a choice to just not go to college and take a course. It's very much you're either going to be an engineer or you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor. So what is it going to be? And architecture was like the sweet spot where I felt like I could still really do what I'm passionate about and make my parents proud. 
Talk a little bit more about that. So what is it like for you being a young female in Iran? Did you feel like there was a lot of business options, opportunity for you? Or how did you feel going into college and exiting college? Yeah. So what's interesting is that in Iran, the majority of college graduates are women. It's actually, I think, like a 60%. So it's very, very common that everybody goes to college in Iran. Not going to college is really weird. No matter what social class or income level or any family background, everybody goes to college. So being in college was very safe. And I think most of our class were females. Very early on into college, I started interning and taking job opportunities. And it was such a disparity, complete night and day between what you see in school and what you see in the professional world. It was almost like what happened to all the women that graduated this course? And we had really great curriculum, really great professors, but there was always one or two that would say, you guys are going to get married anyway, so take it easy. It's fine. You're not going to actually do anything with this. And you kind of want to ignore that. But then when you go into a office space and you see the general structure of the business side of it, you kind of agree and you understand that that is a sad reality here. But I wouldn't say it was any worse than I've seen it here. In the U.S., construction business and architecture, engineering, it's still very much male dominant and you do still get the same kind of notions of like, what are you doing here? So it's very similar to that. I was hoping that when I do move to U.S., it would be very different, <laughs> but I quickly realized that it's pretty much everywhere. No, I, I had to look it up because I work in finance, but the percentage of women in senior roles there is small, but not as small as architecture. So it's about 17% of female architects. So you're <laughs> in a small group. But so after you graduated college with this architecture degree, what did you do with it? What did you think your options were? I was working pretty much the whole way through college. I didn't have any other motivation than purely wanting to have work experience and have exposure. I was still living with my parents. It was nothing other than just kind of seeing what's out there because I've always been very curious about five steps ahead. And I thought like interning and getting some part-time positions will really help me understand that. And the more I went into the workspace in Iran, I saw a lot of things that didn't really sit well with me. I felt like there's still a lot of work to be done there in terms of things being regulated and how things are structured in the world of architecture, where you can kind of get around a lot of the laws and things that are kind of sketchy to me. And I just felt like there are great architects who are working in Iran and doing really, really well, but they have a huge uphill battle to be able to kind of do things that are of a certain quality. And now I'm so happy to see 10 years later, you see more and more great architecture coming from Iran, which just makes me really, really happy. But at the time, it seemed like a very hard battle. And I knew that I definitely wanted to be somewhere where I can learn as much as possible in the shortest amount of time possible. And it kind of coincided with a time where my parents were traveling to the U.S. a lot more. So my parents are both college professors and they would visit here and we would stay in different cities and we'd usually try to plan it around our spring breaks or our summer breaks. So I was fortunate to see cities like Chicago and New York and Houston. And being in the U.S., every time I'd arrive, I would just immediately look up all the architecture institutes, what tours they have. When I was in Chicago, oh my God, Frank Lloyd Wright, we studied all about him in school. I would see all the houses. And it just seemed like I was a sponge and I was just soaking up all this information. And so when I was getting close to graduation, before I even graduated, I was looking at what my next steps would be. 
And being in Iran, everybody was applying for a master's degree without even graduating bachelor's because your only option to, as a man, to avoid the military service that you have to do. So if you're continuing education, you can put it off for a while. And for the women, it was a way of kind of staying within the society and advancing yourself. Most people would apply to foreign programs as a way of immigrating, which is very popular. And for me, because I had the privilege of being able to travel to the U.S. freely, having citizenship in England, I had a lot of options and it came to a point of what's next for me. And even then I thought if I am going to go to these foreign countries, it's going to be for school. I have to go for a graduate program. And my thinking there was I should go and do an advanced course in a university in the U.S. since my family is going to be there anyway and see how that goes, see if I even fit in. Because to be honest, when you are in Iran, you think the whole world is so much better than you. And the fear of, am I even going to fit in in a school like Berkeley? Am I even going to be able to go to a place like UCLA? That is just a huge part of the anxiety that comes with immigration. It's just kind of daunting to you. So my thinking at that time was to find a course, maybe a summer course, and I found a really good one at UC Berkeley. They have an architecture advanced program. It's for recent graduates of architecture, and the people apply from all over the world. And I applied, I sent my portfolio. And the day that I knew that I was accepted into the program, I was just so thrilled. I just could not believe it because I really didn't even think that I stand a chance to get into this. And when I did get into it, then it was kind of about convincing my parents to help me fund this program and now look for housing. And we had never been to the Bay Area. All the places we had been in the United States, we've never been to the Bay Area. And my parents were not planning to come at the time that the program was there. So I would have had to travel alone here for the first time. And so there was a lot of convincing, but because it was educational and my parents are both academics, it wasn't that hard even at that time. So I started the program at Berkeley and the first day my palms were sweaty. I was just so anxious and I was jet lagged and all the things that you can possibly think of being in a new environment. And it was such an amazing experience for me. I think it would really shifted my perspective just to realize that I'm not necessarily worse than anyone here. I know the answer to these questions. I kind of know what's happening. And when I give an input or do a task, it seems to be going well. And for a while, I think for the first few weeks, I was just waiting for the other shoe to drop and for things to just fall apart. It was very different because we had kids in our class who were visiting from Europe and from all over the world. And you'd see them on their weekends. They would go to Big Sur and go to Santa Cruz. And I was in the library all day trying to prove to myself that I got what it takes to be here. For me, it was very much you have to earn your spot. And I saw that not everyone else in the class felt that way. And I, to me, that was really interesting as well. At the end of that course, I graduated with distinction, which was something that they only offered to, I think, three out of the whole course. So that really gave me this boost of confidence that maybe I have what it takes to actually do something. And once that program was done, I started actually exploring the Bay Area for the first time. I hadn't even seen the Golden Gate Bridge until the end of that summer. And I really fell in love with the area, but even then I didn't feel like there was a chance of me staying here because I didn't have any more school to go to. And 
I immediately started applying for master's programs. I applied to UCLA, I applied to Berkeley, and I applied to Harvard. <laughs> and now when I think back, I'm like, wow, goals. And during the time that I was waiting for that, I had a lot of convincing conversations with my parents to allow me to stay and work as an intern in a company that was by the professor who actually taught the course. And my parents were immediately like, why would you want to do that? That's hard. You'd be by yourself. You have to do everything. And I was just so adamant. I really badly wanted it. And I even remember that when my dad, when I had a conversation with him, he was telling me, and this is like my dad, he has like two PhDs, like he's a very, very educated man, but he was telling me, you can go live wherever you want when you have a husband. What are you doing by yourself going somewhere for work? It's not heard of. Women don't just move places to work. Why? We don't need the money. We don't need any of that. And that was one of the moments where I thought, okay, I respect you, but I do not respect this opinion. And it's started branching out and becoming my own person. And this is still when I'm 21. And so moving here was a huge leap of faith and really a not very supported decision. My parents dropped me off at the airport and my dad said something along the lines of when you run out of money, you have a flight back. And after that, I kind of kept them in the dark of the struggle of being able to sustain a living in the Bay Area and work at an internship that does not pay and working evening shifts at restaurants to kind of just make ends meet. A lot of different little side hustles. And then during that time, I met my next company and I just sent them an email and I said, I'd love to work with you. And they said, come in. And that's how I started really getting into the workspace in the Bay Area. And then I stayed with that company for about five years. So that's really how it all turned into the United States. That is incredible. Well, I'm not surprised that it happened to involve UC Berkeley. I'm a proud alum, so go Bears. Yay. I grew up in a really small town, very agrarian in the Central Valley. So even though I'm from Northern California, the Bay Area is not where I grew up. And you see the beauty of Sproul Plaza, and then you go to the Golden Gate Bridge and Monterey and Big Sur, and you're overwhelmed by its beauty. It's just so magical. But then you stayed at that workspace for about five years, Now you have phones ringing off the hook. You have clients coming in all the time. How did you know to leave that workspace and start your own studio? That's a great question. I don't know how I knew. So when I was there, and something that maybe not a lot of people know is that when you graduate with an architecture degree, you're not an architect yet. You have to have 3,800 hours of supervised experience, and you have to pass seven exams that are three to four hours each. And so it's a very gruesome process to become a licensed architect, and many don't. I think out of everyone who works in an architecture business, under 20% are actually licensed. You can work as an architect, just the person in charge who is signing off on the drawings has to be licensed. So you can have a 50-person firm and one person is licensed, and that is fine. But for me, it was really important that I become licensed so that I have more freedom and more control over where I take my career. And the fact that it wasn't something that everybody did exhilarated me and motivated me more to pursue it. So while working a full-time job, I studied for all the exams. I was fulfilling the experience hours and I studied all the exams and I started taking them one by one. And it was great because the office that I worked for were very supportive and helpful. They paid for all the material, which can be very expensive. 
And they supported me through the whole exam process. So again, weekends in the library and just really, really motivated to get this license. And it took me, I think about a couple of years to do it. I passed every exam on the first try because I was just on a roll. I think, especially when you come from a background where you feel like a lot of things are limited and it's not something that you can necessarily just work hard for and you can get, there are all these other obstacles. When you come to a place where it seems like sky's the limit and all it takes is hard work, it feels different and it's very motivating. So after taking all my exams and getting my license, that I think was when I thought, I love where I am, but I also feel pretty comfortable where I am. And I wonder what I can do with this. And I started kind of taking some time off. I traveled, I explored Iran for the first time in a way that I wanted to. I stayed with some friends in England. I kind of just went back to where a lot of those roots. And during that time, I felt pretty good and pretty ready to just freelance. And that's how it started. I would say 2019, it was just me. And that's crazy to say, because that's just two years ago. But the freelance work became a full-time gig. And most of the clients that were calling me were referrals. And I thought, I'm just going to go with this and see where it goes. So it even took us a while to come up with a logo or a name. I felt like I shouldn't call this my own name. That's weird. But then I felt like "Mm, maybe I should. And so it was like a lot of decisions that I never thought I have to make. And then I always in the back of my mind, I was like, this is temporary anyway. So no pressure. It's not like this logo is going to be around for long. (laughs) So it just kind of started organically. And then as I got busier, I started calling up friends that I graduated with and I said, hey, you guys want a job? You guys want to help me out with this kind of project that I took on? Everyone in our office is someone that I knew from somewhere. And because I have a very strong connection to everything that I design, I feel very mama bear over all our work. So it's been a challenge for me to let go of that, the creative control. So when I work with people that I know, it just feels, again, more organic. And we did projects together in college and kind of know what you're doing. So that's how it's kind of worked out. It's amazing. And so you mentioned you started your own business in 2019. And although that seems like 5,000 years ago, it was before the pandemic. And so how did the pandemic affect your business, affect the growth? Certainly now we've heard the stories of almost every commercial or residential property I know doing some type of remodel, renovation or new construction. But that's a couple of years later. I'm curious what the ramp up to your business was like? Yeah, it was a lot of panic. Right before I officially started working for myself, I had a really great offer from a firm in San Francisco. They gave me an almost hard to refuse offer with full creative control to be part of purely their design core and really good pay, work downtown, beautiful views of the office. And they gave me, I think, two weeks to think about it. And they said, by this date at 12, we'd like an answer. And I think 11.55, I sent a response because I just could not decide what to do. But it was very much a gut decision. Every fiber of my being was telling me, you did the office thing and you did it for a good while. Try something different. And if you're getting this kind of offer now, what's to say that you won't get it again when you are ready or decide to do that differently? And then when I declined that offer just a couple months after things started shutting down 
and I was kicking myself. <laughs> I was like, I could have had a salary. I have no idea when my next paycheck's going to come from. This is so scary. And it was really odd for the first few months because I have clients who are in the medical business people who you think their income is definitely not necessarily affected by this pandemic or people who are doing work that you're like, okay, this client is safe, this project is safe. And you do a mental list of like, who do you think is going to go first? But it was interesting because nobody wanted to do anything for a while because they just didn't know where things are going. So there was a period of time where things were just on pause and it was a struggle at that time, but it wasn't that much of a period where I started really panicking. I felt like I still had enough to go on. And because at the time I didn't really have an office, I was kind of working out of our dining room. So it wasn't a huge risk either. But then slowly things started coming back. And I, again, always waiting for the other shoe to drop and thinking this is going to go down at some point. And I think it really motivated me to just up the hustle because what if things get worse? We want to make sure that we have a pretty good buffer, that we have enough in the bank to kind of save us through a pandemic. So I think if it wasn't for the pandemic, maybe we wouldn't have grown this fast because I was all over it. How do we market ourselves? What do I need to put together? How do I start communicating what we do better and try to reach out to other people, let them know that we are available? So very quickly, it became more and more in projects and clients. And since then, it hasn't really slowed down. And now we are definitely, I think in the past year, we've pretty solidly can say that construction is booming. And somehow we kind of got out of this at least professionally skid-free. One thing I want to ask is, this is a podcast, but it's audio, so people can't see your style, but I'll link your website to it. But if you could describe your style to people who have no idea what Maya Salehi's studio designs is like. Yeah, I always tell clients that we don't have a style in the traditional sense that you kind of categorize things because I feel like that's something that really kind of limits you. It puts you in a box and that's not somewhere we want to be creatively. So I think especially in the Bay Area, you have such a wide range of let's just take residential. You have Victorians, you have Tudors, you have craftsmen, you have modern homes and there's you have Eichlers. There's such a beautiful variety of projects. So I don't necessarily want to limit myself to doing just one type. I'm at this point more curious to learn more and more about the different types. But I always say our design, I think you can still kind of see a pretty coherent language of the style or the design type, which is clean, more contemporary. We don't necessarily add things to the project that we think are unnecessary. It's all about function, human scale, movement, light, air. So however we can incorporate that and depending on different jurisdictions, being familiar with the Bay Area, a design in Berkeley is going to be very different than something you design in San Jose and very different to what you would have in San Francisco. So I think there are definitely companies that would work exclusively on one style in one area. But that doesn't excite me as much as what we're doing right now, which is just how do we take what this is and make it better for the people who are going to use it? That's kind of the style. (laughs) You mentioned initially that you were thinking about going into interior decor and design and your style from an architectural perspective is already so beautiful. It's not just simple wood panels. It's different lengths, different segments of wood paneling and different ways to do the framing. And so I love that layout already in terms of that design. 
Does your style get impacted by all your world travels? What about Iran specifically? Yeah, I think Iran is one of the most beautiful, architecturally speaking, countries in the world. When I have a chance, pandemic aside, I would travel. And everywhere that I go, I have a little bit of sadness that Iran isn't as well known as a tourist destination because I see people in huge lines in other countries going to see the structure. And I'm like, there's so much nice things in Iran that no one's seen and it's vacant. And I kind of love it that way because it's not saturated with tourism and it still feels very much like how it was meant to be. So I feel like my Middle Eastern roots always come into play. A lot of our projects, we have courtyards and Iranian architecture thinks a lot about the seasons. You have your winter sitting room and your summer sitting room, and you really think about solar gains and privacy, and you have your private quarters where all your bedrooms are. So I feel like that really does influence the way that I think about how spaces are organized. And then again, to what you mentioned, even though it's architecture, it's usually very well decorated. It's a lot of colors, lots of patterns and tile and geometry, but it never feels tacked on or unnecessary. Everything serves a purpose. And I'm very drawn to that. So I think studying architecture in Iran, looking back, was a huge privilege because for our field trips, we would go to these structures that were thousands of years old and it's just humbling and it does become a part of you. And I think the more that you see, especially when you work in any kind of creative field, it archives in your mind and somewhere along the way you have an idea and you don't even realize how it's linked to something that you've seen. So I think it's very much influenced the way we work. I was looking up some architecture in Iran and you really do see those lines and whether you subconsciously or consciously know you're influenced by it, I could see a lot of that geometry in your current designs. Maybe then I'll switch gears to the questions I ask all my guests. And this is a segue to the, the inspiration part, but what or who inspires you? My mom is probably a big inspiration in my personal life. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, she had two kids in a foreign country. She didn't speak a word of English when we got there. And by the time we left, my mother had a PhD from the University of Bangor in English. And I just can't imagine being in my 30s and learning a new language and then pursuing a whole academic career out of it while having two kids that I'm homeschooling in a different language and then learning math and science of year 11 or high school (laughs) curriculum so that I can teach these kids and then also make sure that the house is immaculate and everybody has great home cooked meals at the end of the day. So to me, real life, superhuman and wonderful role model in just creating community wherever she goes and just being this source of energy for everyone. So I've always really looked up to her. And I think professionally, there's just so many great architects that I look up to, but What really interests me about looking at any architect from Le Corbusier, Frank Gehry, Frank Lloyd Wright, Ms. Van Dore, any of the classic architects, you see that their best work is when they were in their 60s or in their 70s. So I think it's kind of, again, very humbling to know that they're thriving pretty far into their career. And it's not similar to what we see a lot in the Bay Area, like tech work, where you can be the best in your field at 25. It's very much a learned experience. And it's with age, you kind of see the maturity in your work. So 
for a person myself, very eager always to be two steps ahead. It's a good way to kind of ground myself and to say there's still more to come. And it doesn't mean that we need to have everything right now. And we're not going to necessarily compare ourselves to the greatest of the greats because it does come in time. Amazing for you. Here you are, a young Persian woman who graduates like many people do in college in Iran, but many women don't work in particularly. So I'm curious if you had a role model that helped you think that you can do it because the idea is generally people, there's that saying that you can't be what you don't see. Mm -hmm. There's not many female Persian architects in the world. I'm going to guess a very, very small percentage on the world. And so how did you do that? Did you have a role model growing up? That's a very good question. I think it was the lack of seeing someone who does it that really motivated me. And I never really focused on that. I grew up playing football with the boys on the street and my mom would have to yell at me to come in. I never really felt like I need to be separated or there's a different standard. I always kind of saw how people would look at it and it would bother me, but it also was like that chip on my shoulder that just gave me something more to prove. And for me, it wasn't about ending up where I am. It was just doing the next thing that felt right to me and was exciting to me. And at the time that I graduated, it was moving to the US. And then the next thing, one of my biggest motivations of doing this is hopefully that, especially with our presence in on social media or Instagram, it's really so that if someone is watching and they are in a situation that I was, maybe I can be that person to them because you're absolutely right, especially when you try to take on quite a bit of work and venture into different fields, it's almost frowned upon at a very young age. And that goes for both women and men, because within the architecture community, it's almost like you have to earn your position to be able to design. You have to work your way up. You have to do 12, 15 years of drafting before someone sits you at the table. So to go out there and say, here we are, and we're doing this multifamily building. And by the way, I'm 27 years old. It's pretty crazy, but also why not? So that's really what drove me to do that. You are still very young, but I'm curious, you've designed for college campuses, for dorm rooms, for residences and commercial projects. What are you most proud of? It doesn't have to be one of those projects you've done. It could be traveling the world and choosing your path. But I'm curious, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of the relationships that we've built along the way. It is the absolute joy of my career that now I have the total freedom to choose who I work with. And I think it is very mutual for us. We vet our clients just as much as they vet us. And if I feel like I cannot get along with someone, I politely decline their project. And I have stuck to that from day one because I feel like it's a career. It's a job that you don't leave at the door when you go home. It's always on your mind and you are constantly thinking about it. And it's very personal to people. When you work on a residential project with a family, you're designing their dream home that they've saved up for for 20 years. And there's so much anxiety. The stakes are so high for them. And building in the Bay Area, the smallest project could be half a million, a million dollars. So they're really trusting you and you end up building very, very deep relationships. One of my happiest moments is when we get invited over to a house that we designed for 
Thanksgiving or just to have tea in their backyard. And you've developed this amazing friendship that just happened organically. So I would say it's always been the relationships and it's something that I would never compromise on. Of the stories I've heard from people who have done new design and remodels and all that, I don't think many would say that they're friendly with their architects. And so well done for that type of relationship and building that. I think that's actually super true. And a lot of the people that contact us, unfortunately, have had prior not so great experiences. And I think that's another thing where we're young. We don't have a 20-year portfolio, but what we do have is we're good at communicating and we will keep on top of the project and you have someone to call if you need me. And so we're really trying to kind of use that angle and to say, at least nowadays, I think there's no excuse for any professional person to be irresponsible or irresponsive to something that they committed to. So I think that's actually kind of where we are finding our target. Well, so the listeners on my show, I get a lot of feedback from them. And it's funny because as the show grows and it's been now on its third year, so many people say, Yin, these aren't failure stories. I use the F word in the show, but really the personal journey stories. And so I usually don't get to it until kind of the end because it's a very inspirational story. And yours is very similar in that perspective where people listening, I hope are inspired as I am. And that's why I wanted you to be on the show. I'm curious. And this is the question I ask everyone is, Initially, three years ago, when I started the show, I would say, can you share your biggest failure or the most impactful failure? And over time, all the answers then evolved to a setback or a failure that then said, but I grew so much or I learned so much. And so I would change it to then say, can you share your biggest growth moment? And so I'm curious what yours is, whether it's growth or failure. There was a period after moving to the States that I would call my growing pain year where It was not only just a new environment that you are dealing with, like any other person who relocates even within the same country, but when you come from a background where things are pretty much set for you, traditionally speaking, religiously speaking, there is a set way that you need to be, or it's expected of you to be. And I feel like the underlying motivation of moving to the States was that I never really conformed to that. And... I wanted the freedom and the space to understand who I am. And during that time, I look back and there are cringe moments where I'm trying so hard to be something that I'm not. And it's those memories where you look back and you're like, oh, did I do that? Did I say that? Was I that needy for a group, a community? But my takeaway from that time was that you have to give yourself the opportunity to make mistakes because that's really the only way you can understand who you are as a person. And until you try a few different avenues that might not make sense to you at the end of it, you don't really know. What we know is what we've been taught. So it was kind of detaching from expectations and then trying to set new ones for myself. So there was a murky area and also being very young and taking on quite a bit of responsibility very early. It was very, very tough. I wouldn't say it was one particular moment, but it was definitely an entire year of moments (laughs) that just really helped me define who I am. And it was failures from not so great friendships or not so great work environment, all the different things you can imagine when you are young and you just say yes to every opportunity. And you kind of are that stupid brave 
which is a great time to be. And I tell my sister who is now turning 23, I'm like, you are in your stupid brave phase. Don't miss out on it because you are going to get to your not sure because I have so much responsibility. So I probably should pass on this opportunity phase. (laughs) So I think that's a good period of time to really just let yourself make mistakes. Well, I've never heard of that stupid brave expression, (laughs) but I like the concept a lot. And I love the idea of detaching from expectations and that translates into so many things. But for me, I'm curious if you find that once you have found your own authentic voice and your own authentic self and learning to say no, has that translated somehow in your designs? I think so. I think looking back at how I started designing, it was safe. It was what I thought the client would like and what I thought would give me the least heartbreak. And it's very interesting that you asked that because we're right now working on revamping our website and I'm looking at some of our earlier projects and I am just taking them out of sequence and just sketching over them and thinking about them with what I know now. And when I look at that, I believe that I'm more courageous in the way that I design and I'm taking more risks and I'm just building myself up to the courage of a client saying, absolutely not. I hate it. And I'll be okay. I will survive that. And there was a time where I felt like I would not survive that because disappointing is the worst feeling for a girl who was raised to please and to be the good person who doesn't cause problems. And I think in any creative outlet, there is a safe way of doing things, but it's not necessarily going to be creative. So I think creativity comes with courage and comes with taking risks. And I love that the more secure we are becoming, And the more our clients trust us because it's two ways, right? When you start doing more projects and they start seeing your portfolio, you are almost earning more trust and getting more freedom in the way that you design. So I think I keep trying to push those boundaries when I can. And sometimes the ideas seem crazy to me and sometimes it's a total fail. So if anything, to the point of your podcast, our job is little failures every single day. And it's about loving your projects to a point where they still feel so personal to you, but also being able to change things on the spot because the structural engineer says that this doesn't work or because this is too expensive or this is out of stock. So there's always these little things that are disappointing and heartbreaking. And before I feel like I would dwell on them a lot more, but now with experience, I think in any field, you see them as opportunities. Oh, this is going to take this somewhere else. And I didn't even know what it was going to be. So a lot of little fails during the day. I wouldn't say it's the point of the show, but it's one of the things I wanted to focus on is it's not just one failure or two failures that change someone's life. It's a series of little setbacks or failures that hopefully people see that it's not a failure, but it's an opportunity. And that's where the show really starts focusing on people's journey, because inevitably in their journey, you have a year of hardship or you have a series of setbacks. And so I love the way you articulated it. And last thing that I'll pivot to then, is you said, creativity comes from courage, which I love. And so when I think about your journey from your parents forcing you to leave Iran to go to a new country and befriend someone in their middle school years, which is really tough to do, then you have the courage to say, no, I'm going to go to California, which not many people do from Iran. But the idea that there's so many moments in your journey that highlighted your courage and not surprisingly has evolved to so much creativity professionally. What's next for Maya Salehi? I think a 
big part of courage is letting yourself go a little bit to the unknown. I definitely started out my career making five-year plans and 10-year plans. And I don't know how to say this, but the thing that I wanted to do in five years, I did in a year. So it seemed like my goals are unrealistic or life just changes so damn much all of a sudden or a pandemic comes along. And with all of these things happening, you realize you're not in that much control as you think. And so to me now, it's just about doing the next thing that excites us and feels good to us and feels right and really just following our gut. So I want to still be in the creative side. I fear that when a business gets a little too big, you are more in the management side and it's more administrative as the owner. So I like the kind of sweet spot of having a team, but also having enough time to really focus on the creative process going forward. And that's kind of where I'm heading and just seeing where it takes us. I think we're at this point established enough that I do feel like the logo is going to stay around and the office is going to stay around. At first, I was like office lease on a monthly basis because I have no idea what's going to happen. But now we have a one year contract. So baby steps in commitment (laughs) to the business. But I think it would be very hard for me at this point to pivot. We're growing together and it's a part of our identity. And just knowing that Now we're in a position where we can hire people and give them a space to work that's maybe different to what they are used to, especially hiring women and allowing them a lot more freedom with their schedule. I just kind of see it more going towards a business with a cause. And that cause might be just as simple as providing a work environment that is elevated in the standard of life balance and how you enjoy your job. So I'm now more motivated of how can I incorporate that more into everybody's day to day. And I'm really excited for that in the future. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to track your next project and then really the decades of your career, because if you follow on the path of the the legends you mentioned, then your greatest work won't happen for 20, 30, 40 more years. And so I'm excited to see that. Since your podcast is about growth, I wish I would have known earlier that growth does come with a lot of pain and a lot of frustration. And there are definitely moments where you feel like just giving up and completely throwing everything out. And I think in those moments, I would have loved to know that these are actually the defining parts of your career or your life or your relationship, whatever it is. And that at least for me, that's rang true. And I just think that there is no growth without failure. So spot on. Maya, thank you so much. I had a blast in this interview. Thank you so much for having me. It was such great chatting with you. 